Didomi is a Greek word meaning to give or has given. God gave, Didomi. And now it's our turn to give back, Didomi. My name is Wissam Salibi. I am part of a group of Christians working in various organizations that advocate for justice and peace. Our group has put together the Didomi podcast. Welcome to the second episode of the Didomi podcast. We invite you to listen to the first episode where Maryam, Manal, Brent, Michael and myself reflected on why we started this podcast. We hope that our podcast captures the efforts of Christians worldwide advocating for human rights, justice and peace. Contributors and hosts for each episode will vary. So in the second episode, we are joined by Michael Mutzner, the permanent representative of the World Evangelical Alliance to the United Nations in Geneva, and myself uh, as advocacy officer for the World Evangelical Alliance and my role. We are also joined by Ari Depater, who is the Brussels representative of the European Evangelical Alliance. Since May 2017, Ari puts a face and the mouth to EEA's presence at the European institutions and related networks in the European capital. Ari comes from uh, an extensive advocacy experience and background defending freedom of thought, conscience and religion at national, European Union, OSCE and UN levels. And as a special guest today, we also have uh, Mark Joost with us. Um, Mark is uh, the General Secretary of the Swiss Evangelical Alliance and he's also the Chair of uh, Interaction uh, and Stop Poverty. Interaction is a platform uh, of the Christian Evangelical NGOs uh, in Switzerland. And uh, in this role, Mark is involved in um, monitoring and supporting um, a political initiative in Switzerland where the Swiss citizens have to vote on on a new law that will create uh, more accountability for international um, for multinational companies and uh, so we'll getting we will be getting to that topic later in this podcast thank you michael and since you started the well you joined us first on this contribution um, michael i would like to ask you now if you could share with us about what is happening in France in terms of what was used to be called the French Bill on Separatism, which President Emmanuel Macron announced on the 2nd of October. In your capacity as World Evangelical Alliance Permanent Representative here in Geneva, you've been working on this issue, and I've been working with you on this issue, of course. Mm. And um, it would be great if you can uh, share with us, help us decipher the issues surrounding this bill, to illustrate in a broader way the tension that exists uh, in a Western country like France between the value of freedom on one hand and the increasingly social, uh, strong social pressure in favor of greater control of religions and in particular of radical Islam, quote unquote. Yeah, well, thank you, Wissam. Uh, yeah, this bill actually has changed its name uh, a few times lately. Uh, first, it was called the Bill Against Separatism and then the bill to strengthen secularism. And it is now called the bill to strengthen Republican principles. Uh, first version of the bill was uh, circulated uh, just a few days ago. And the debate and the process has just begun and could last for several more months. Mm. But why does France need to strengthen these Republican uh, principles? What is the law, what threat or problem is the law responding to? Well, 
this bill tries to provide an answer to the problem uh, of radical Islam. It should be noted that in the last decade, uh, France has suffered several particularly deadly attacks, uh, terrorist attacks, uh, such as the uh, Charlie Hebdo newspaper attack in two 2015, and later in the same year there was the massive attack uh, in several places, including the, the Bataclan Hall, uh, where 130 persons died. Uh, on a year later, 14 July 2016, in Nice, 86 people died, several hundreds wounded. Um, and, you know, there's a whole context. The secret services are monitoring more than 10,000 people suspected of being radicalized and who are, and, um, who are present on the French territory. Uh, the famous fish S, like they call it in France. And there's also hundreds of Frenchmen who have gone to war in Syria. And all of this has deeply shaken the French society and has also led, uh, I have to say, or contributed, to, contributed sorry, to the rise of the extreme, uh, the extreme right. And recently, the government's determination has been further strengthened after the terrorist attack on Professor uh, Samuel Paty, who had shown and, and thematized, uh, thematized caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in a course on freedom of expression and who was assassinated last month. But sorry, Michael, this is not a, an anti-terrorism bill. So what's the real purpose of this law? I would say that this is a bill that mainly wants to, to put in place tools to combat the spread of a radical Islamist ideology that would develop outside uh, the values of French Republic, Republican society or even against it. In the words of uh, President uh, Macron, Islamist separatism would constitute, a quote, a counter-society whose manifestations are the de-schooling of children, the development of communi communitarized sporting and cultural practices that are the pretext for teaching principles that do not conform to the laws of the Republic. It is indoctrination, and through it, the negation of our principles, equality between women and men, human dignity. That's end of the quote from President Macron. Uh, Michael, what are the measures in this bill, practically speaking? What What is the new thing that it brings for a country like France? Well, without going into technical details, the, the bill proposes measures to increase, increase state control over religious communities, but also over the associations or non-profit sector like, like the uh, sports clubs, etc. It also increases control over public schools and severely, severely restricts uh, homeschooling. Among the measures that have caused a lot of ink to flow, there's also a ban on health personnel issuing certificates of virginity. But the, the CNEF, which is the French Evangelical Alliance, has expressed some concerns about this bill. So why are they concerned? Well, I don't know if evangelicals are... Uh, really worried, at least not extremely worried at this stage, but I would say that they are determined to collaborate in this legislative process to find solutions that are bearable and proportionate to the goal. So there is, uh, on the side of the French evangelicals, a position of, of vigilance with regard to certain measures that could go too far and could be too restrictive. Moreover, in the framework of our work, we will be meeting the French ambassador in Geneva in the coming days as World Evangelical Alliance to express also these points of, of vigilance to him. And actually there's three points in particular uh, that are monitored by, by the French Evangelical Alliance. On the one hand, uh, there are the 
the reinforced measures of control of religious associations. A second point of concern is that the freedom of expression and the autonomy of churches uh, could be restricted in the face of the prohibition of discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And the third point concerns the issue of homeschooling. Uh, even if the practice is not very widespread in evangelical circles in France, it is important to find pragmatic solutions also to avoid a, a disproportionate restriction uh, of the freedom of education here. Okay, but beyond these specific points, it seems to me that there is a risk that a climate of suspicion towards religion will be reinforced with the adoption of such a law. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I, fully, I totally agree. With this kind of bill, we, we are talking a lot about religious communities as representing a problem, a threat. Uh, what will France do to get the message across that it also recognizes the value and contribution of religious communities, that it cherishes pluralism, which is also a, rep a republican value? Michael, uh, this also raises the question of what is the right way to tackle radicalism? Uh, this is uh, there is sometimes uh, a perception that this kind of legislation contributes to further stigmatization of all Muslims and thus to further radicalization. So uh, from a Christian point of view, do we have anything to say about this? Can can we project our values of inclusion and, and embrace uh, through our response to this law? Well, uh, yeah, certainly I, I would say two things, you know. On the one hand, there is sometimes an expectation, especially, uh, I, that's my impression in France, that the state should solve all, all the problems. I believe that the state can offer certain solutions. It is responsible. Uh, the state is responsible for guaranteeing public security and freedoms, definitely. But it, it also has its limits. You have to have reasonable expectations towards the state. So, so secondly, from a spiritual point of view, I ask myself, what makes thousands of people adopt a radical ideology? I believe that the people have a need to believe, a need for reference points, a need for a project, a need for a vision and, and for hope. But Western capitalism and materialism do not offer all the answers to the great questions of life. So I, I also see a call to the church in this situation. We have a message of hope to proclaim. Uh, and, and this is not the role of the state. That's the role of the church. Uh, Michael, I have one last question. I sometimes hear Christians say that the right of some religious groups should be restricted more than others. You know, we work, um, you and I work at the World Evangelical Alliance. We represent more than 600 million evangelicals worldwide in Geneva. And we make it clear that religion, religious freedom applies to everyone. Uh, is this, is this transpiring from the Christian responses to the law? I, I, I hope, and I think it should. Um, and I agree with you. You know, either religious freedom is for everyone or it's for no one. Uh, I speak as a Christian. In, in my opinion, there, this is the only defensible position from a biblical point of view. So this question could be the, the subject of a future podcast, maybe, if our listeners so wish. But at this point, I'd just like to say that we have a God who empowers uh, mankind and makes us capable, you know, of choosing or rejecting God. As Christians, we also believe that faith does not impose itself. 
it's, it's a personal choice. We therefore expect the state to guarantee this freedom, a free society where everyone can then choose their convictions, as long as these convictions respect the law and freedoms defined uh, in the social contract. Mm. We, we want mm. this freedom for ourselves. We also defend it for others, including Muslims. Muslims. So as said, I believe that uh, when this space of freedom is created as Christians, it is our responsibility uh, also as a church, you know, to propagate the values of the gospel. We should not expect the state to do this. Uh, uh, we cannot expect the state to do what, what is the responsibility of the church and of faith groups. So the state can promote the values of the republic, but in the end, values also depend very much on what one believes. So to speak to the heart, to speak of belief, I think this is precisely the role also of believers. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for sharing. Um, you know, I would like to interject and add uh, something related to France and an idea related to France. There was a decision by the Human Rights Committee a couple of years ago that on France related to the wearing of the veil in France that went that this, the Human Rights Committee's decision went against the ruling of uh, the European Court of Human Rights. And one of the committee members justified the decision, their decision, by saying that the French, they, they have a concept of vivre ensemble, living together. They have this important concept from which they draw rules and legislation. And the Human Rights Committee, I remember the Human Rights Committee member saying at one of the events that I attended, saying that this concept of vivre ensemble in France is used to deny women the ability to wear a veil. And that same concept can be used in another country to force women to wear a veil in the name of the value of living together. And it, it's really, it struck me how um, the, this, this, the, the foundations of the values and how they relate to human rights and the universality of human rights is, is so much at play in a country like in France and in Europe because also of the European Human Rights uh, uh, Court's decision. And it's quite challenging, I would say. So thank you for your... Uh, Thank you for this. Uh, You're welcome. Sharing about about France's recent uh, legislative attempts on this on these matters, and uh, now I would like to move to Ari Depater, who I remind our listeners is the Brussels representative of the European Evangelical Alliance. Uh, I had met Ari a long time ago in Lebanon before I, either of us joined. Uh, our current uh, organizations and joined uh, that's several years working. ago Avisam. that's that's many years ago <laughs> many many years ago and i'm very happy ari that you're with us uh, you'll be talking about uh, what's happening in brussels in terms of uh, policies related to migration and asylum Yep. Thank you for joining us and please go ahead. Yeah, recently we saw an announcement or a presentation of a new migration and asylum pact. And um, that's trying to regulate uh, asylum and migration. Um, we have all seen the, the pictures from, from Greece, from Italy. Um, we've seen the people um, drawing in the Mediterranean. So something has to happen. Um, but at the same time, migration is no new phenomenon and there will be no end to it people will continue to wonder about. 
There have been times when many Europeans left the continent and now other people are coming back. Um, people flee war, conflict, oppression, uh, economic circumstances, discrimination, natural disasters. Um, and, and both migrants and refugees, they hope for a better life elsewhere, like the Europeans who left the continent um, uh, centuries ago. But um, by the end of 2019, almost 80 million people were forcibly replaced. About 40% of them are minors. Um, so that is children under or people under 18. And, and 45 million stayed within that country of origin. So we call them internally displaced. So technically they are no refugees. But um, that's, that's more than half of the, of the people registered. Um, only, only 26 million are refugees. And um, 4 million applied for asylum. But it's good to realize that, well, these are quite overwhelming uh, numbers. But 85% of all refugees are hosted in developing countries. So they never arrive in Europe. I mean, I'm Lebanese. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we have the highest ratio of refugee to, to citizen. One million uh, refugee for maybe four to five, five million Lebanese living in the country. Uh, so yeah, it's these incredible. figures, uh, yeah. yeah, they they make for a good crisis, Ari, don't they? A few years ago, I, I was in I was in Lebanon and I saw I visited some of the refugees um, in their kind of makeshift encampments, but also in in well makeshift housings in in Lebanon. It was in Beirut. It, it was it was terrible to see. Um, so when we talk about the crisis. I would say that first and foremost, this is a crisis for the refugees themselves uh, and, and for countries like Lebanon uh, and other developing countries that are receiving the overwhelming majority of these refugees. And of, of course, when, when we hear refugee crisis, I think most listeners will recall footage of 2015 when thousands of refugees landed on the shores in Italy and Greece. And, and, the dangerous journey across the Mediterranean, but also other routes, they made many victims. Uh, refugee camps were soon overcrowded. The European Union just wasn't pre prepared and, and struggled to find an adequate answer to the refugees and migrants arriving on the continent. And that led to a political crisis. Um, so rather than a, a refugee crisis, I would say this is a political crisis. And if leaders don't have an adequate answer to the refugees arriving, then the people get nervous, and that was only adding fuel to the fire, I think, in, in various European countries. And, and today, the numbers are nowhere near those of the peak in 2015. But now might be the time for the European Commission to present a plan for a more structural solution, which is very much needed because we know that the current situation isn't sustainable. We can't continue business as usual, so we need a, a protocol or a procedure to um, to address migration and asylum, and that's what the European Commission did. Well, precisely, Ari. What what is the solution, or at least how did the politicians respond? Well, I think that's a common pattern that you will see um, well everywhere. But politicians and policymakers they love numbers. So first thing they do is, is look at statistics. And statistics are very helpful. They provide a quick overview. 
can be useful means to measure the effect of their policies. And of course, they can be helpful to quickly give you an overview of the size of a problem. And politicians at the moment desperately wanted these numbers to go down. What's wrong with that uh, specifically, the numbers going down? Well, there's nothing wrong with the numbers going down, but let's not forget that this is this is about people. This is about migrants and refugees. And it, it's not just about numbers. And these people, they all come to Europe with their own story. And these stories provide a different angle to discuss migrations. I, I think all of us have this picture of Ilan Kurdi washed up on the beach in Turkey. Hmm. That's just a case in point. When a number or a problem becomes a person we can relate to, then our attitude and responses often changes. And, and that's what is needed, I think, at European level. Well, Ari, how, how did the Christian across Europe respond to that? I think that was, uh, the, the church was really quick to, to respond. Um, and, and churches and individual believers across Europe have responded to the refugees arriving in the neighborhoods. Many have shown hospitality. They pro provided shelter, meals, language classes, um, helping refugees to integrate. I think that that's that's crucial. Um, and others have this, well, and that's good to realize as well, I think. Um, other Christians have responded more defensively because they were concerned about their future and the safety of their families based on the stories they, they read in the news. Um, and, and what we realized and what we found also as, as European Evangelical Alliance, that sometimes the, these two different responses were united in just one and the same person who were both compassionate for the refugees and at the same time concerned, concerned for their families. I've heard uh, not only in Europe, but also in other countries, Western countries, that there is one of the questions that uh, comes to mind when discussing migration refugees is, what about my future job? You know, will it be taken by a migrant? Are these yeah. concerns justified? Yes, and I think there is no point in denying the concerns of people. That's that's not making these concerns going away. And, and there are no easy answers to the challenges that come with migration and refugees. Let's 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 be realistic. In today's organized world and globalized economy. Migration is a very complex issue. Um, so I think it's important for people not to be deceived by politicians who provide easy answers and simply uh, simple sound bites. That's just too simple and it's not solving the problem. And of course, we cannot welcome all migrants. And But at the same time, when politicians say that we should address the root causes of migrations and we should helping we should be helping refugees in the region, these are not quick fixes either. So it's it's good to realize that this is complex. So if we want to have a solid answer to the, to the migration to the migrants and and uh, refugees coming, uh, I think we need to take the time to 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 address all these concerns and and these problems, because our demography requires new workers to fill the gaps, uh, also to keep our factories going. But the economic development of the countries of origin, where, where these people fled from, they will also require these skilled workers. So, so we need to find the, the right balance to, to be hospitable and welcoming those who really um, need, are in need of protection 
and at the same time be realistic in what we can uh, what we can manage as a, as a continent. Mm. Ari, are any of the solutions currently being discussed include take, uh, taking more refugees in Europe? Is there talk of an absorption capacity anywhere? I'm just yeah. wondering. I mean, I- when you talk about millions and millions of refugees worldwide and Europe not taking and and other western countries not taking refugees and is there anyone saying that we should be taking much more well i'm not quite sure whether whether there are many politicians who dare to to call for for receiving much more i think at, at local and national level we've seen uh, christian organizations calling for a more generous approach and, and when you mentioned quickly you mentioned absorption capacity and i think our economies our countries our societies as well are strong enough to to welcome the people but it's it's it also requires politicians to to defend these these refugees um so when they talk about absorption capacity it's the task of a politician as well to to make sure that we um that we gather that um, this support for the refugees. It's too easy to say, for me, it's too easy to say, well, our society isn't ready for it uh, because it's a task of a politician to lead and not just to follow. I was, I was, sorry, I was playing the devil's advocate when I asked about absorption capacity, just to clarify what uh-huh. you're saying. Yeah, we've seen, we've seen the case of Angela Merkel, right? Who's been very bold and at the same time, um, also, I mean, there, there was a cost for her boldness and 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 welcoming uh, one million refugees refugees in, into into Germany. Uh, but uh, that's yeah. To respond to what uh, you just mentioned, that's the type of attitude of a leader who 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 has tried to take responsibility and leadership. Yeah, and I do appreciate her for that. Mm. Of course, it comes with challenges, but um, I think something had to happen. Um, and, and she was brave enough to say, okay, we can't just leave them where they are in, in these terrible circumstances. So let's do something. And she did. Well, indeed. And th- this brings us also to the churches, right? Uh, we also expect the, the, the churches maybe to, 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 to be prophetic or, or show some leadership on those issues. Um, what did you do? So you, you represent the, the the European Evangelical Alliance. Uh, what did the European Evangelical Alliance do in this regard? Uh, yeah, well, as you said, I think it, it, it's definitely a role of, of churches and, and faith communities across Europe to um, to welcome people and to help them help them integrate. And as European Evangelical Alliance, we we supported these churches, um, helping them to shape their response, and and. But at the same time, to to foster a candid discussion, both within the faith community mm. itself, and also with society, because as I said, we have these this this challenge where where people are on one hand compassionate and at the same time concerned, and and just suppressing that concern or or that kind of tension even within people themselves, that's not helpful. Um, so we we try to foster that debate. Um, and we have also collected best practices and, and shared some useful resources um, for churches, for faith communities, for individuals who are um, welcoming and supporting refugees in a, a refugee in the neighborhood. And, and that's published on our website as well, uh, including a 
policy document that we recently updated, also well, providing some policy positions uh, as an EEA, and that was warmly welcomed by the people. Can you give us examples of such good practices or best practices? And I will make sure to include them in the show notes so that people can click on the links at the end of the show notes on the podcast, including the EEA website. But can you give us examples now of these best practices? Yeah, there, there's a there's a series of, of best practices on our on our website. But one particular thing I want to to mention, uh, and that was kind of a, a unique contribution for the EEA uh, as a platform uh, to the discussion, because we we quickly um, found out that that the converts among the refugees, so people who fled that country. Um, because they converted from one religion to another or from one religion to none, um, they were in, in they were double vulnerable. Um, so they they had the challenges not only for well for a refugee, but also for converting and leaving the faith community that they were uh, joining at home. And and when you use that as an argument in your asylum application, too often immigration officials, they didn't really know how to deal with these cases um, because well, we were talking in, in talking about France, we were also talking about this kind of uh, separation between state and church. But how can a state discern whether someone generally converted from one religion to another or to none? So how can you measure Christianity? And, and countries have failed miserably in, in some particular cases. But through our network, we identified and shared best practices. So how do you measure Christianity? Of course, there is no uh, scientific scale where you can say, well, you are 30% Christian or you are 70% Christian. Um, but there are ways to to uh, assess where people are. And, and how they live their faith, um, how, what kind of reality it is in their life. And, and thanks to our collective efforts um, as EEA and our member organizations, the situation of converts has improved a lot in, in several European countries. So I think governments, thanks to our efforts, uh, governments are better prepared now to, uh, to deal with, with, asylum applications where people claim to have converted from one religion to another or to none. We will now move on to, to our final uh, topic for today uh, with uh, our special guest, Mark Joost, who is uh, the General Secretary of the Swiss Evangelical Alliance and also, and also Chairman of uh, Interaction, the platform of uh, evangelical Christian NGOs in Switzerland. And um, so in Switzerland, uh, the citizens are about to vote uh, or are in, in the process of voting because you also can vote early uh, for a new law that wants to make multinational uh, corporations more accountable for human rights violations they might have committed uh, in uh, foreign countries. So uh, Mark, uh, welcome again uh, with us today. And we would be very interested to, to, to hear you on this. And first, maybe you need to explain us what this law is really about. Yeah, thank you for receiving me. Uh, the Responsible Business Initiative, how it's called, 
wants multinationals to respect human rights and the environment in their activities abroad. Um, so four times a year, Swiss citizens have the opportunity to vote on referendums or initiatives like this one. And this would then have a, a change in our constitution. So how is uh, the initiative uh, working, what we are voting on? Under the responsible business initiative, companies must respect human, uh, must respect human rights and the environment in all their business activities be it uh, in Switzerland and abroad. And uh, this mandatory due diligence will also be applied to Swiss-based companies uh, and for their um, partners in business. So in order to ensure that all companies carry out their due diligence obligations, Swiss-based firms, firms will be liable for human rights abuses and environmental violations caused abroad by companies under their control. So that's that's uh, what it's all about. So the new thing that this law will bring is that Swiss citizens can take these companies to court in Switzerland or or the citizens of the countries where the violation took place or both. What is this, what is this new mechanism gonna bring in terms of the courts? Yeah, so it's, it's about uh, the foreign citizens. It's not about uh, Swiss people. Um, so multinationals from Switzerland are active in many countries uh, around the world and uh, not in all the countries, as you know, uh, the rule of law is, is, really, is really in place. So sometimes there are people <clears throat> that are affected by a multinational from Switzerland and they are, don't have the opportunity to, to go to a, to a um, a tribunal or bring to court a, a case uh, that where they suffered. So this initiative would give the opportunity to do that from abroad in Switzerland uh, and bring this uh, company to court. So it's for um, the cases abroad, but you can bring it to court in Switzerland. Okay, so so Mark, if if I'm in Nigeria, I'm in a Nigerian citizen, and something goes wrong with with one of the the big Swiss firms, uh, I feel uh, my rights violated. I can go to to the Swiss court to to challenge that Swiss company as a Nigerian citizen. This would be the new opportunity if this initiative is accepted. Until now, it's only possible to do that in the country where it happened. There are some yeah. uh, countries in Europe, they already uh, put in place this possibility, like France, uh, UK and the Netherlands. Uh, so Switzerland would not be the first country to uh, put in place uh, a law like this. Um, but uh, until now, it's only possible for some people in to do this in their country, especially when it comes to Swiss multinationals. Mark, I've I've seen uh, a lot of uh, heads of companies in Switzerland because I'm living in Geneva. I've seen them speaking up against this your efforts, and they're saying that uh, you know the this campaign has the wrong target. They're saying that it would impact the income of these companies. How do you respond? Yeah, first of all, uh, my response is 
that this is something that it's not new for us because in Switzerland this is uh, the normal situation when you suffer from <clears throat> a violation of human rights you then go to court and, and have the case so uh, and to the argument you mentioned uh, of that this is bad for the economy in Switzerland uh, we have many entrepreneurs in Switzerland who say no it's not like this uh, it's uh, rather the other way around because small businesses um, uh, are in a better place with the initiative when the multinationals uh, have the same rules uh, in all the countries like they have in Switzerland and uh, what we see in countries like UK and France or Netherlands the multinationals don't feel uh, restricted or, or bad treated so that they leave the countries uh, no it's not like this they stay and it's even uh, a better uh, image and values they have if they can show we even uh, keep you to human rights and environment uh, globally because in our days uh, in a globalized world uh, you you have to to work <clears throat> everywhere the same to be credible Mark, the, the churches, uh, the Protestant, the Catholic and the Evangelical churches have been strongly involved in this campaign in favor of, of the campaign uh, and uh, the more restrictive measures. Now, uh, how has, the, has this been received uh, by, by the society at large on the one hand? And how is this received and perceived also internally by, by your own church members? Yeah, it's not a coincidence that uh, churches and Christian NGOs support uh, this initiative. Uh, eight, already eight years ago, it, it was Swiss NGOs who started the initiative together with uh, other NGOs. So the first thing to say is there is a big part of civil society and a big part of the churches who supported it uh, now for months, no, it's for, for, for years. Now, closer to, to the decision, <clears throat> some critical voices come up in the society and in the churches as well. And the, the debate is, is very active and uh, uh, very uh, hot <laughs> as well. Um, but it, it's a, a unique situation that all the big church federations support the issue and I think it's because of love your neighbor in a globalized world uh, does mm. not only mean to love your neighbor in Switzerland but to love your neighbor all around the world and I think this is uh, clear to many Christians that's uh, why they support the initiative. Yeah Mark and, and I think well you mentioned the or, or we saw mentioned the economic argument but isn't it a very limited understanding of your role as a company in this world just to make to make a profit? Because human rights are always kind of, to yeah. a certain extent, detrimental to your to your profit. Well, multinationals, if they are if they criticize the initiative, they that they wouldn't say human rights or the environment uh, are not important. No, they say of course it is, but uh, we do it already, and uh, we we can. We can report as much as you like, but what they fear is 
that the new instrument to bring to court uh, a company from abroad, that uh, this instrument would be abused and instrumentalized from, from uh, the concurrence. That's their argument and that's the fear they want to spread uh, in the society. But I think the values and uh, the, the, the human rights and the, the, the support for this uh, at the end uh, will have the majority. At least that's what I work for and what I hope. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, for joining us and sharing about your initiative. When will the vote take place? Is it, it is uh, next Sunday, 29 of November. Uh, is it 28? Uh, well, end of November, last Sunday, and then we'll know uh, what's the decision. Thank you so much, uh, Mark. You know, Swiss products have a Swiss guarantee label on them. Mm. I hope that this initiative succeeds and Swiss guarantee label uh, expands to include human rights and the environment very strongly. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you, Ari. And thank you, Michael, for joining us for the second episode of the Domi podcast. I'm really grateful for all our conversations and thank you for our listeners for listening and we appreciate your feedback. So if you email us at contact at didomi.co, any feedback that you have, that would be very appreciated so that you can help us and support our work by giving us feedback. Thank you so much uh, and we look forward to having our listeners on a future episode.